Hey, let's pray together once more. Father, we love you, and so good to sing to you that, that last song about how we need you. It's just our, our declaration of dependence. We are so dependent upon you, Lord. And, and so we just pray that you would come now, and by your spirit, you would teach us as we open your word. And we pray that you would open our eyes where we are blind and open our ears where we are deaf. Would you soften our hearts where they are hard? Lord, come and do all that you want to do here in this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, hey, it's good to be together. Welcome once again. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at FBC, and we want to invite you to grab a Bible, uh, if you have one, and turn to the book of Acts chapter 2 as we continue our sermon series, preaching through this book. This is week 5 now, and we're just starting chapter 2, verse one, uh, the words will be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. Also, there are Bibles under the seats if you would like to grab a hard copy. Again, join us in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Um, if you're new here, an extra special welcome to you. We know it's not always easy to come to a new place uh, or to try out a new church uh, if you don't have a church background especially. And so we're glad that you are here. And one of our core commitments, the first one actually, is to worship. We want to worship God passionately and joy and, and really orient our whole lives around him. Uh, one of the ways that we do that is by coming to the word of God and studying the Bible together, reading it together, hearing it taught. And so what we're about to do is an act of worship where we humble ourselves before God. So uh, glad that, that we're able to jump into that together in Acts chapter 2. Uh, while we're doing that, Amber and I, you should know, just finished watching all of Downton Abbey. And I'm not afraid to say that we loved it. It was fabulous. Any, here, any Downton Abbey fans here in the house? Okay, okay, okay. All right, a little more than first service. First service, they were a little shy. Not everyone. A few people came up to me afterwards and said, I watched it. I just didn't raise my hand. I'm not sure why, but that was the case. Um, it's this picture, right, of, of life in the early 1900s for the British aristocracy and their servants with lords and ladies and a lot of scandal and drama and tea, a lot of tea. And for, um, again, the series, there's six seasons of the TV show, but then there's two follow-up movies. The new one just came out, I think, the most recent movie, Downton Abbey, New Era. Anyone see the new movie? New Era, a few, okay, no spoilers, don't worry, I won't mention it, but it's called Downton Abbey, New Era. And that tagline, New Era, is really actually indicative of a th major theme throughout the entire show, not just that last movie. The whole show really is about the dawning of this new era as uh, kind of old ways of life are left behind and this new world is dawning there in the early 1900s. Uh, they show throughout the show the characters trying to adjust to these technological advances, these cultural changes, and so, so things like uh, electricity and a telephone being installed in the house for the first time and a, a radio being installed in the house for the first time, uh, things like uh, uh, electric hair dryers and electric mixing bowls in the kitchen. Uh, also, again, changing relationships between servants and the upper class changing uh, opportunities for women and the way the world is just looking different. And some people in the show, like our beloved Mr. Carson, if you know him, is very uh, suspicious of these changes. 
and concerned about the old ways dying off in this new world uh, coming into existence, while others are quite excited about the changes that are upon them and stepping into the future, this new era. Now, I mentioned that because this morning we look at the book of Acts chapter 2, and it's this remarkable dawning of a new era for the people of God. This new era that is marked by the coming of the Holy Spirit. And this really key transition from the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, the way the Jews used to interact with God, now to this new covenant life. This new covenant church built on the person and work of Jesus and filled by the Holy Spirit. We see that unfold here in Acts chapter 2. Look at it again with me, verse 1. It says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So, Remember what's been leading up to this moment. Acts chapter 1, we see Jesus alive, resurrected, appearing to his disciples, teaching his disciples, preparing them for the mission ahead, but he tells them to wait in the city of Jerusalem. Don't go yet until the promised Holy Spirit comes and empowers them for the mission ahead. And so... Throughout chapter 1, we've seen this anticipation building and the disciples waiting for that promise to be fulfilled. And now here, verse 1 of chapter 2, we see the disciples are still all gathered together waiting in one place. It's likely the same 120 disciples that we saw last week as they replaced Judas in the group of apostles. And they're gathered on this day of Pentecost. Now, Pentecost was the second of three great pilgrimage feasts for the Jews. So the Jews celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, they celebrated Passover, the one we're probably most familiar with, and they celebrated Pentecost. It was essentially a a harvest festival in the spring, uh, 50 days after Passover, where the Jews would gather and they would thank God for his provision for the the grain harvest, for how he's taken care of them. Uh, It wasn't as popular as Passover, but there would still be many pilgrims that would come to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate and remember uh, the work of God. And so it's there that they're gathered and something quite miraculous happens. Right? You saw it in verse 2. A sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven. It filled this whole house where they were sitting and they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And then verse 4 says they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they begin to speak in other languages. So here is this, this fulfillment of the promise, right? The promised coming of the Holy Spirit that they've been waiting for, that Jesus told them would happen, that even if you go back and look at John the Baptist in John chapter 1, John the Baptist said this would happen. He said, right, Jesus will baptize them with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And here then the Spirit comes upon the people of God in an unmistakable way. There's a violent wind from heaven, There's sounds, there's what what looks like tongues of fire resting on each of them. So all these kind of audio, visual signs are indications that God's doing something really special here. 
Because if you think about where we've seen these things before, wind and sounds from heaven and fire falling, those are all images or themes from the Old Testament that would kind of clue them into the fact that God is showing up here in a special way. So we're going to look at a few Old Testament verses, uh, a number of them, to kind of show you uh, what I mean here. For, for example, um, Ezekiel chapter 37, there's this prophecy about God pouring out his spirit and his breath, or the very wind of God uh, being breathed on these dry bones, and they are brought back to life. Or another example of, of wind representing, again, the presence of God and his voice. Uh, God speaks to Job. You remember Job in, in chapter 38 when God finally uh, appears and speaks to him and kind of puts him in his place. It, it says that God spoke out of the whirlwind or, or out of the storm God spoke. So we have not only wind, but we also see fire here. Maybe earth is thrown in there somewhere, but we see fire as well. Exodus chapter 3, God speaks to Moses out of what? Out of a bush that is burning. There's fire. It's not consumed, but it's, it's burning. Or, or think of Exodus chapter 13, where God leads the people out of slavery in Egypt, and he leads them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So with all these images fresh in their minds, the Jews would know these references, and, and, and even more profoundly, they would look back to Mount Sinai. As God led the people out of Egypt, out of slavery, into this new life, he led them in Exodus chapter 19 to a mountain, Mount Sinai. And it was there that he gave them the law and the Ten Commandments, and the covenant was, was established, his new relationship with his people. Now, before we talk about what happens at Mount Sinai in, in greater depth, realize the connection to the gospel, that the order of things. God rescues and saves and redeems, and then he gives his people the law and establishes the covenant. And usually what we do is we get that backwards. And we say, God gives us his law and his commands, and if we obey, and if we measure up, and if we jump through the hoops in the right way, then he's going to rescue and save and bless us. But we see even back in the Old Testament with the Exodus, no, God rescues and redeems and saves his people. And then he says, now that you are my people, I'm going to teach you how to live. That order is really important even still for us today. So we see God leads his people in the Old Testament to Mount Sinai. And look what happens there in Exodus 19. We'll read it. It says, Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. And Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. And the smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. And the whole mountain trembled violently as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. There's smoke and fire on the mountain. There's trembling of the mountain. There's uh, the voice of God coming forth to his people as he's forming his people. Think then about the connections with Acts chapter 2. The wind and the noise and, and God's glory and power being revealed in a way very similar to the Old Testament. 
Even more, there are these indications here of God's uh, presence with his people. This, he's dwelling among them. If you, if you look uh, later at Exodus chapter 40, it speaks of how the cloud and the glory of God would, would come and fill the tabernacle, this tent of meeting where God was said to dwell. Or, or later in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, stay with me here, where the temple is dedicated, and it says this about that. It says, when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. <clears throat> when all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good. His love endures forever. So you see, in the Old Testament, the temple was the place where, where God dwelled, where his glory was manifest. And that was marked by fire from heaven. And now we read in Acts chapter 2, wind, a rushing wind from heaven, and what looks like tongues of a fire resting upon each believer. And so we see that in the New Testament, and, and still today, that the temple in Jerusalem is no longer the focal point of God's presence and work in the world, right? Why? Because the focal point of God's presence and work in the world is now his people. It's not a building. It's not the temple in Jerusalem. It's his gathered people, the church. Think about what Ephesians 2 says. Paul, writing to the church, says, You're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. And this is Ephesians 2.20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him... The whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 is this powerful and vivid indication that the church, disciples of Jesus, as the people of God are being built together into this new temple in which God lives and dwells. This new temple where, where God establishes his new people under this new covenant. And it's fascinating if you look at how the Jews understood the festival of Pentecost. Over time it became associated with Exodus 19 and Mount Sinai and the uh, establishing of the covenant and the giving of the law. And so it, it's fitting then that, that God would establish this new covenant, this new relationship with his people, again, built on the person of Christ and now filled with the spirit at this festival of Pentecost. It's this key passage that, that marks the, the, the new era in history the age really in which we live now, the, the church age, where we're filled by the Spirit, and each believer is now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And I'm not saying that we now each should expect to have this same exact wind and tongues and fire experience as in Acts chapter 2, but every believer now does have this, this personal 
uh, presence of God dwelling within them, which is the Holy Spirit. He takes up residence within each of us who trust in him and amongst us collectively as his church. Now, this reminds us that, that being a Christian and following Jesus is about much more than just an intellectual affirmation of certain ideas. And sometimes we, we buy into this, this kind of dry, dead religion approach where we say, hey, faith in Christ is about checking some spiritual boxes or making sure that we affirm these sentences on a page and we don't see how that transfers over and then impacts how we live every day in our eternity. Now, following Jesus certainly includes embracing key doctrines and affirming key statements of faith about who God is and who Jesus is and what the gospel is. So it's certainly not less than that. But do you see that this life with Jesus is not just a, a get-out-of-jail-free card so we can pass a test at the end of history and avoid condemnation. It's also that we now are made alive, that we have had this real encounter with, with the living God who, who takes our, our heart of stone and replaces it with a new heart and a heart of flesh. And he, he takes us when we're dead and he makes us alive again. And he leads us to live this new life marked by love for him and love for people. Romans 5, 5 puts it this way, that God's love has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. But often we, we can be suspicious of the Holy Spirit. I think some of us, maybe our, our predominant relationship with the Holy Spirit is marked by suspicion. Or, or maybe, maybe we're just ignorant. We don't know a lot about the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity and how he works. But maybe, I don't know, maybe some of us are in this room a little uncomfortable already. We're talking about speaking in tongues. We're going to talk about that in a minute. We're like, ah, I don't know. Francis Schaeffer has this great quote that speaks to this tension a little bit and hopefully can help us resolve it in a healthy biblical way. Francis Schaeffer, some of you know his, his work, uh, hear his quote here. He says, Often men have acted as though one has to choose between reformation and revival. Some call for reformation, others for revival. And they tend to look at each other with suspicion. But reformation and revival do not stand in contrast to one another. In fact, both words are related to the concept of restoration. Reformation speaks of a restoration to pure doctrine. Revival of a restoration in the Christian's life. Reformation speaks of a return to the teachings of Scripture. Revival of a life brought into proper relationship to the Holy Spirit. The great moments in church history have come when these two restorations have occurred simultaneously. There cannot be true revival unless there has been reformation. And reformation is incomplete without revival. May we be those who know the reality of both reformation and revival so that this poor, dark world in which we live may have an exhibition of a portion of the church returned to both pure doctrine and a spirit-filled life. You see this point? We're not just to get stuck in our heads 
and only care about purity of doctrine without that doctrine influencing the lives that we lead. And we're also not to go out and chase some kind of experience uh, devoid of the truth of Scripture or grounded in the Word of God. Both are necessary. So the question for us is, are we open to this? Are we open to a life filled with the Spirit of God where we experience the fruit of the Spirit in our lives? Love, joy, peace, patience. Are we marked by these things? This, this week I read uh, a book, or not, I didn't read the whole book, I read part of a book by J.D. Greer, uh, solid pastor, and he wrote a book called Jesus Continued, and the tagline of the book is why the Holy Spirit inside of you is better than Jesus beside you. And, and we've talked about this before, I think I've referenced it before, but he goes off the, the teaching of Jesus that says, hey, I'm to his disciples, I'm going away. It's actually better for you, though, that I go away. It's a good thing that I'm going away, because then I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to come and dwell within you, and he will be with you and guide you into all truth and so on. Um, which I think is hard for us to wrap our heads around. Sometimes I think we'd rather have Jesus like flesh and blood right here next to us going into whatever we face. But Jesus says, no, no, it's actually better to have the Holy Spirit come and dwell within you and lead the church. I think it's a provocative thought. But in the book, he writes about a young man named Brennan uh, who was a well-respected and trusted leader in their church, he was young, yet had given, been given great responsibility, but, but he had uh, a secret, dark struggle in his life, one marked by sexual sin, pornography use, hookup culture, and, and things that he could not shake. And he tried everything he could think of to change. He tried to, to memorize scripture. He tried to cancel his internet. He, he got accountability partners. He made vows and nothing seemed to work. He ended up checking into an intensive kind of months-long ministry to help him with this. And, and afterwards, he, he showed up to Pastor J.D. Greer's door months down the road, and J.D. said he was remarkably, noticeably different before they even spoke, just seeing him walk up. And, and so we asked him, J.D. Greer asked him, what in the world happened? What did you learn at this new ministry that, that helped you? And he responded, I didn't learn anything new. I was a little puzzled. I didn't learn anything new. Meaning, hey, what, what I needed was not necessarily just more information or more content. Because he knew his Bible. And he had memorized the passages. And he knew the truth of Scripture. So he said, I didn't learn anything new. I had to lean on the Holy Spirit. He said, I had to learn to lean on the Holy Spirit. Through this ministry, he saw that the Holy Spirit was not just some abstract theological concept that we affirm, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a, a real person with whom we interact and upon whom we depend. And so he said, yeah, these temptations are still there in my heart, these struggles, but the power of God's spirit within me has become more potent than any lust or sin that I struggle with. 
And that experience and him sharing that led Pastor J.D. Greer to, to reflect and ask the question, is Christianity for us more a set of beliefs we adhere to or a dynamic relationship in which we walk with the living God by his spirit? Now, look back with me at the text again, and there's more going on here. We're going to talk about their tongues, which is a strange sentence, I admit. Verse 1 to 4, the group is together, there's the sound and the fire, and um, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking in other tongues, and look, look at the reaction, verse 5. It says, now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hear them in our native language, Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, <coughs> visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. It's pretty remarkable, right? In Jerusalem, again, there were Jews that had been scattered among the nations that were present here for this festival of Pentecost, and the crowd hears this commotion in the upper room, and then they're amazed because what they're hearing is, in their own language, the wonders of God declared. And that's repeated a number of times in their own languages, right? You see that in verse 5, they were from every nation. Verse 6, each one heard in their own language. Uh, verse 8, how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? So over and over, you see that the phenomenon is that uh, by the Holy Spirit, this gathering of Jesus' followers are declaring the wonders of God, and all of these people from various nations and languages and backgrounds are, are hearing the words in their own tongue. So notice with me a few things. One, in Acts chapter 2 then, uh, the phrase speaking in tongues is not some kind of unintelligible word or noise or, or babbling perhaps, but it's a known human language that's being spoken. Right? Jews from different nations are hearing them in their native language. Jews from Egypt, we're, we're hearing them in Egyptian. And, and those from Arabia, we're hearing it in Arabic. And, and so on. This is a, a miraculous sign of the Spirit. Now, this is the topic that gets a little uncomfortable for some of us today because the topic of speaking in tongues can be quite divisive in the modern church. Um, and that refers to speaking in tongues two kind of different ideas. One is the utterance of different human languages like we see here. Different languages being spoken and understood, even though the person uh, doesn't know how to speak Arabic, for example. But somehow by the Spirit, they're, they're speaking and someone is hearing them in fluent Arabic, that sort of thing. Uh, there's also this other phenomenon uh, of speaking in tongues that's like unintelligible speech, often in more charismatic or Pentecostal circles. Maybe people have some experience with that and there are some concerns there to talk through. A couple notes. So, some would say that if you don't speak in tongues in either of those ways, that you haven't really had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. So there are some segments of the church that will teach that, that if you don't speak in tongues, we're not really sure you're a Christian. 
Or maybe you're a Christian, but you're like on the B team sort of thing. Um, and I think that teaching is very problematic and not accurate to the teaching of Scripture. And we should be very clear that that's not the case. Uh, because in Acts, as, as the gospel um, moves out, nowhere is it taught or assumed that all Christians will have this sort of experience. Right? This is a very unique moment and event in history. Um, and so I'm not saying we should expect to have this same sort of uh, encounter. Uh, but I have heard stories from, from the mission field, perhaps you have as well, where people, again, even in the modern day or recent centuries, have gone to, to share the gospel in another culture and in another language. And there are times where there is this uh, miraculous work where someone hears the gospel in their own language or they'll, uh, you know, they'll come up to someone after like a, a presentation or a teaching and they'll say, Did you, like, do you know how to speak Russian, for example? And they're like, no, I, I don't know how to speak Russian. They're like, because you were speaking Russian up there. And you know, that sort of thing. And they're like, wow, that's quite miraculous. Um, and so, and so there, there are some Christians on kind of the other side of the things that will say um, the gift of speaking in tongues does not operate at all today. They're called cessationists, kind of the more miraculous gifts of the Spirit. They'd say we're, we're for the first century in the time of the apostles and not for today. Personally, I don't find that argument as convincing based on the scriptures, the cessationist argument. So um, I, I think there, there is good reason to believe that that gift still functions in certain ways, though I think there's certainly been abuses of it and unhealthy expressions of speaking in tongues, often in many today Pentecostal circles. We could talk about that more at length. But so what I guess I'm trying to say is that I think the biblical account is somewhere um, in the middle, saying actually I think it still functions at times like this today, but we shouldn't all expect it to happen. And we should actually be quite discerning when we see these expressions and, and thoughtful to evaluate it in light of Scripture. So much more could be said there. We can't go as deep into the topic, but please come talk with me afterwards if you have questions or wanted to, to work through that. Uh, but the point here of Pentecost is, again, these are human languages being spoken. And it tells us a few things. First, we see the people of Israel being unified Okay, think about it. Under, under the Messiah, this was a promise that the Messiah would come and, and he would unify the, the dispersed and the scattered people of God. One example, Isaiah 11, speaking forward of the coming Christ, it says, In that day the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. You see, there's this Old Testament promise that the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to unify the people of God. And though they are scattered and fragmented under the rule of the king, the exiles will come together as one people of God. And now we have at Pentecost, we have the Jews who are scattered, yet they're here together for Pentecost, hearing the wonders of God in their own languages and what Jesus has done. We see this promise being fulfilled. And this text also reminds us of, of the mission that God has for his church. Think about it, there's this long list of nations and thus languages represented in verses 9 through 11, right? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and, and so on. And it covers much, most of, of the first century known world for them. Okay, look around at, at kind of this clockwise circle of, of nations and languages represented there at Pentecost in Jerusalem. 
And we were just told, right, looking at, at, at Acts chapter 1, verse 8, what? That the mission of the church was to be empowered by the Holy Spirit and go take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to be Jesus' witnesses to the ends of the earth. The church's mission is to join with God in bringing the message of the gospel to all people everywhere. And now we have Pentecost, this powerful sign of the gospel breaking out into the world, into every tribe and tongue and nation, the good news of Jesus and the the wonders of God, verse 11 says, going forth. This reminds us, church, that, that we are blessed to be a blessing. We have this real encounter with the living God and we receive this this new life in Christ and we're forgiven of our sins through the cross and we're brought into the family of God and now given the gift of the Spirit and it's not just for our own benefit that we enjoy uh, the love of God and all that that brings, though certainly that's part of it. But then what he he sends us out on mission, that the gospel is to go out. We're blessed to be a blessing to the world by bringing the gospel. Now, notice again one other connection then here about mission. Do Do you remember the Tower of Babel? Remember Genesis chapter 11? There's this uh, event in the Bible where the nations of the earth, the people of the earth are disobedient to God. And rather than filling the earth with his glory, as he told them to do, they stick together. And they say, we're not going to fill out across the earth. We're going to stay right here. And in their own human pride, they build this wimpy little tower to their own ego. And God kind of comes down and says, oh, it's a cute little tower you built. Um, And he scatters the people throughout the earth. And he confuses their language. And that's a key part of the story. And now here at Pentecost, we see what the people of the earth, not scattered, but brought together, and their language is not confused, but actually language barriers removed, and them hearing the gospel in their language. Theologian John Stott puts it this way, ever since the early church fathers, commentators have seen the blessing of Pentecost as a deliberate and dramatic reversal of the curse of Babel. So God is is bringing together this new humanity centered on the person and work of Jesus and he's unifying his people and empowering them by his spirit. So rather than people being scattered and languages being confused here at Pentecost by the spirit, people are being brought together and unified and language barriers removed. It reminds us of the global scope of God's love and God's mission. Now, you see there's different responses to all of this, right? What do verses 12 and 13 say? Some were amazed and perplexed, and they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. Even though we'll read later, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning here. Uh, But some were like, they've been drinking? That's what all this commotion is about. Some are amazed and open and curious and want to know more. Others scoff and shrug it off. Even though this is a miracle, a a pivotal moment with the work of God in the world, and some laugh it away. So again, how about us? 
I mean, how many of us can relate to Brennan in, in the story we talked about earlier? Where, where what we need, perhaps, is maybe not more information. Maybe we know the Bible really well. We've been coming to church for a long time. We don't just need more content transfer. We, we just need a fresh encounter with the living God. We just need the real and living God to, to touch our hearts. Uh, Jesus himself, in, in Luke 11, do you remember, he, he said, hey, even you fathers who are evil <laughs> know how to give good gifts to your children. It's kind of like a sting, and, but even you evil fathers know how to give good gifts to your children. And if that's true, then how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So sometimes it's, it's as simple as that, that we want to come before our Father and, and ask. Say, Father, I need more of you. I need you to come and fill me afresh with, with your spirit. Father, my heart is cold, and I need your love to be poured into my heart today. Father, I'm not sure you love me. I'm not sure you've forgiven me, and I need you to powerfully remind me in this place today that I belong to you. Maybe some of us need to trust in Christ for the first time. We've never repented of our sin and trusted in Jesus for salvation. So maybe the Holy Spirit will be prompting us to, to do exactly that. Maybe some of us need, again, boldness for mission. Some of us are timid and afraid and really just handcuffed by what people think of us. And we need to pray that the Holy Spirit would come and make us bold for mission. Again, in the context, this is about the gospel going out. Maybe there, there are conversations we need to have, questions we need to ask, phone calls we need to make. And we can pray now, Father, would you give us your spirit, empower us for the work you've called us to do. You know, maybe some of us are just weary and tired and worn down, and we need God to fill us with his strength. And so we're, we're, we're going to pray now before we take communion. I just want to give people an opportunity to respond. I want to invite you to pray and just join me in closing your eyes. And, and if you'd like, you can just simply open up your hands there on your lap. This is a, just a simple prayer posture to say, Lord, I'm, I'm open and receptive to you and what you want to do in my life. And so, Father, we come to you in prayer. And really, well, Lord Jesus, you said that the Father knows how to give good gifts and give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. And so, Father, we come and we, we ask for for your Holy Spirit to fill us. We ask, as, as Romans 5.5 5 says, that you would pour out your love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And I pray for, for those in this room, again, perhaps who, who feel distant from you and unsure of your love, and they need to be reminded of your favor and blessing upon them through the work of Jesus. I pray that now, by your spirit, you'd remind them. And I pray now in this room, Lord, that, that anyone here who uh, is just trapped and caught in a sin, maybe it's secret and hidden and no one knows about it,
I pray that by your spirit you would convict them and you would lead them to, to bring that to the light, to confess it to you, to someone else, and to receive forgiveness and healing in Jesus' name. And Lord, I pray now for those of us that are, that are weak and timid and afraid and held captive by the opinions of others. Lord, would you fill us with your spirit and make us bold to share the gospel, to invite everyone we know and everyone we encounter to come and experience the love of God in Christ. And while we're still closing our eyes, if anyone's here this morning and you're just sensing again that God's, God's speaking to you right now, that this is for you, would you just raise your hand? Because I'd love to be able just to pray for you specifically. If any of that just applied to you where you are, you can just raise your hand and I'd love to, to pray for you. Pray for healing, pray for boldness, pray for encouragement, pray for comfort. Yeah, I see you. I see you. I see you. I see you. Father, I pray for each person that just raised their hand now that, that you would, again, fill them with your spirit, that you, you would touch their hearts in exactly the way that you know that they need, whether it's comfort or encouragement or conviction, bringing about repentance or, or again, just rest and, and, and joy and peace, whatever it might be, Lord, would you bring that to them? And thank you, Lord, that that you have saved us through the work of your Son. That this access to you, this gift of the Holy Spirit, this uh, identity we have as your children is only through the work of Jesus and his cross. And so, Lord, we're about to take these elements of, of communion that, that remind us of the broken body of Christ and the shed blood of Christ, the cost of our redemption. And we just want to say thank you. And thank you that we're saved by grace, through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. So we come before you with grateful hearts, Jesus, for your work, your death, your resurrection. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, you should have received uh, the elements when you came in. The communion elements, mine are down here in my seat, so I'm just going to come and grab those. Uh, at FBC, we practice an open table, which simply means that even if, if you're visiting, if this isn't your home church, if you're not a member here, um, that's okay. We invite all who have trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior to participate with us. So if you're a Christian, we invite you to take the elements with us as we remember Jesus. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me.